This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 300th episode, we're doing Spinosaurus Revisited. So we're going to go really in depth into Spinosaurus, including an interview with Nizar Ibrahim, the guy who brought back Spinosaurus in a major way with some excellent new discoveries and all sorts of good work. So we have a lot to talk about with him, obviously. And in the news, unfortunately, not a lot of Spinosaurus news comes up all that often. But I do have a new Dinochirid, a relative of Dinochiris, that super weird clawed herbivore. Not Therizinosaurus, a different weird one. <laughs> if you're familiar. There's a lot of those. Yeah. I mean, Spinosaurus is also a weird one. I mean, that's not an herbivore, but... Oh, we're talking about herbivores, right? Yes. <laughs> they were just saying weird dinosaurs. Unless I missed something in the interview, I'm pretty sure Spinosaurus is still a carnivore. Oh, yeah, it's a carnivore. <laughs> but yeah, so we'll get into so a little bit of Dinochirus to break up all of the Spinosaurus. But before we get into all that, really quickly, I want to thank some of our patrons for helping us make it all the way to episode 300. And this week, we'd like to thank Risa, Ranger Chris from Dino for Hire, Robert, Paula Canthus, Ayumi, Rhinosaurus, Bill Jago, Anne, Francis and his Allosaurus, and Rohan. Yeah, thank you so much for all of your support. Without you all, we would not have made it to episode 300. This is true. And we really enjoy talking to everyone on our Discord, getting to know you through our Patreon. So if you want to get in on that, then check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino. And since this is our 300th episode, and the Spinosaurus episode, we've been mulling over doing another top tier for our Patreon for a while, so we might as well just release this. We kind of just decided to do it right now, but we were planning on calling it Spinosaurus because they sort of go up in scale as we go up the tiers, so Spinosaurus is bigger and sort of badder <laughs> than depending T-Rex. Depending who you ask. Yes, depending who you ask. If you ask the creators of Jurassic Park 3, then definitely. So we're launching our Spinosaurus tier and with it, we're going to give away an exclusive thing every year to only members of the Spinosaurus tier. And for the first year, we're going to give away that metal print of the dinosaur art that Sabrina made. The parading Parasaurolophus. Yes. And if you are at the Tyrannosaurus level, you got that before. But we only did that as a one-time thing for the 160 patron mark. So in the future, if you want it, you can join at the Spinosaurus tier. And then for future years, we'll have to come up with some other exclusive giveaway. Well, we've got ideas. We do. So there you go. New tier, Spinosaurus, Spinosaurus episode. Yay, 300. Yep. But before we get into all the crazy Spinosaurus details that we have in this episode, we're going to quickly go into our new Dinochirid. 
The paper describing this new dinosaur was published in the Journal of South American Earth Sciences and written by Claudia Inez Serrano Brañas and others. And in it, they describe Paroxinosaurus. Pretty sure is how you say it. Like I mentioned earlier, it is a dinochirid, which means it's a relative of dinochirus. And dinochirus is that dinosaur where the first bones that were found were the large arms with huge claws. And everybody had these hypotheses that it must be this massive carnivore because what other animal would need such huge arms and huge claws? Right. Something <laughs> terrifying. Yes. And they just had the arms on display at the American Museum of Natural History for many years before we found the rest of the skeleton. And then when we found it, super weird. Sabrina likes to refer to it as the Jar Jar Binks of dinosaurs mm -hmm. <laughs> because it's got a big weird head. It's got a hump back, a wide pelvis because it needed a big gut for its herbivorous diet despite having these big imposing clawed hands. So a really goofy dinosaur. It's one of my favorites, definitely. And dinochirids in general are big weirdos. So I like the whole group. And I didn't remember this when I started reading the paper, but dinochirids are ornithomimosaurs, which means they're close relatives to things like ornithomimus and gallimimus. Oh, those <laughs> yeah. fast running dinosaurs. Yeah. When you know that that's the case and then you look at dinochirus, you can see the family resemblance, the sort of bird likeness of them and the legs and the arms and everything. But they're very strange. So it it's hard to remember that they're in that group and not one of the many other groups, kind of like a platypus. Like, where would it fit? It could be a lot of different places. Right. <laughs> Plus, Dinochirus was slow moving. Yes, because I don't think its legs were quite as long and gangly as you see on some of the other ornithomimosaurs. But this ornithomimosaur, or more specifically Dinochirid, is Paroxenosaurus. Maybe it should be pronounced Paroxenosaurus because it starts with the same para as Parasaurolophus. But when I was looking up the Greek pronunciation of paroxin, that's how they say it. And paroxini is Greek for strange, hmm. which is just the perfect name for a dinochirid because they are some of the strangest dinosaurs. And it literally translates then to strange dinosaur, strange <laughs> lizard. <laughs> I love that name. And then ironically, the species name is normalensis. Yeah. <laughs> strange, but normal. Yeah. But it's normalensis or normalensis because it was found in the 1990s and then it's been sitting in the collection at Benemerita Escuela Normal de Coahuila or BENC for short. So really the normal refers to the university that it's related to, not its normalness. <laughs> I don't know if there is such a thing as a normal dinosaur anyway. That's true. But if there is a normal dinosaur, it's definitely not Dinochirus or Paroxenisaurus. The location where Paroxenisaurus was originally dug up is in the Cerro del Pueblo formation of Coahuila, Mexico. It's not too far from Texas, sort of southwest from San Antonio, across the Rio Grande, all that good stuff. And the holotype has a hand claw, some foot bones, and a foot claw, but they also referred some other bones, including more of the hand bones. It's kind of weird that the hand bones are in the referred material, mm -hmm. but the hand claw is in the holotype. Must have been where it was found. Yeah. Then there's also foot claw in the holotype and some foot bones, but then there's more foot bones in the referred material. And then there's also a partial femur and several tail vertebrae. So it's a pretty good smattering of fossils from around the body of Paroxenisaurus. 
As with all new dinosaurs or any sort of genera or taxa in, in the animal kingdom when you're naming a new species or genus or whatever, it has to have something unique about it. And in this case, the unique thing is its claw. They describe it as strongly curved, which I find strange because I thought maybe that was for a dinochirid that is strongly curved, but it's not even as curved as the Alvarosaurid from two weeks ago, which isn't all that curved. Mm. It's way less curved than something like a Dromaeosaur with the really curved thing. And it even looks less curved to me than Dinochirus. <laughs> and it's a Dinochirid. It's less curved than some of the other Ornithomimosaurs, though, than, say, like Struthiomimus or Gallimimus. So maybe that's what they're going for, that it's like it looks like it's in Dinochiridae because it's more curved than some of the other Ornithomimosaurs. That's my best guess. Because compared to anything else, it isn't really strongly curved. But they say that the claw is also laterally compressed, which implies that it's not good for digging and it would be better for something like slashing. When we were talking the other day about large claws that animals use that aren't for attacking and they're for digging, they tend to be a little bit broader because, you know, that's better for shoveling. You don't want just like a knife is hard to dig with, better to dig with a spoon. <laughs> but these are laterally compressed, which is interesting for an herbivore. And the claw also has a large flexor tubercle. What's that? So that's where the muscle attaches to the claw. It's if you were going to hold a claw, like a claw bone, and then use it as like a knife. All right, as you do. You'd be holding the non-sharp end of it. You know what I mean? Sure. The big bulge that's sticking out of the bottom of the claw there is the flexor tubercle. So it's the part that the animal would have the muscle attached to that if it flexed it, it would sort of be in the grasping mode. And it's large. So I guess it probably had a large muscle there and had some good grasping ability, one would assume. What it used it for? Nobody knows because it's Dinochirus and it's just <laughs> a big mystery. A Dinochirid, yeah. Oh yeah, true. Not Dinochirus. It's Paroxenosaurus. So given that it's laterally compressed, it might have been used for slashing at something maybe May it could be used for combat self-defense holding leaves, <laughs> holding leaves. <laughs> ripping them violently from trees i don't know it's weird something we might find out years from now that we would have never have considered yeah or it could be a combination of lots of things as is usually the case with evolutionary traits maybe it was for building nests or something yeah could be <laughs> I mean, that's what it ended up being with sauropod claws on their feet. We think part of it is for digging nests. So, sure. Paroxenisaurus is from the Campanian, which is a first for North American dinochirids, which puts it at 80 million years old, plus or minus about 4 million years. So it's pretty late as far as dinosaurs are concerned. All dinochirids are Cretaceous, so that's not too surprising. I think all ornithomimids in general are Cretaceous. I might regret saying that. But <laughs> yeah, it's a more derived animal, obviously. And in terms of size, it was about 5.7 meters or 19 feet long, and it weighed about 600 kilograms or 1,300 pounds, which makes it similar to Beishan Long, another Dinochirid. They also have similar looking feet, <laughs> the authors pointed out. But both of those are way smaller than Dinochirus, just for the sake of completeness. Dinochirus was about 11 meters or 36 feet long and weighed about 6,400 kilograms or 14,000 pounds. So large. So it's like a tenth of the weight of Dinochirus and half the length, basically. 
And the length doesn't really mean all that much because these are really stocky animals. They didn't have long tails. It's not like a sauropod where the length really gets extreme as they get bigger. It's all in the gut and the hips <laughs> with these animals. So yeah, it's it's pretty small as far as dinochirids go, I would say. In their phylogeny, I was expecting it to come out near Beishan Long since they're from a similar time period. They have similar looking feet, similar sizes and all that, but they didn't. It actually came out closer to Dinochirus, which maybe shouldn't be too surprising since it's from North America and they're both from North America. But it's also a close relative to Garudamimus, which is a Mongolian Dinochirid. So that's kind of weird. Just add that to the strangeness. Yes. However, Beishanlong is in a nearby outgroup, so it's not that far away. And real quick, so we don't interrupt the interview because it is amazing and I don't want to pause for an ad break. We're going to do a quick ad break from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now we begin our epic dive into Spinosaurus, starting with our interview with Nizar Ibrahim. And real quickly, I should mention, we have an extended version of this interview for all of our patrons, which is especially important this time because it includes a lot of questions that patrons asked. We told our patrons that we were going to be interviewing Nizar and asked if they had any questions, and we couldn't fit them all in the show because we were bumping up against a two-hour long episode. So if you want the extended version of the interview, then check out the premium content feed, which is available to all of our patrons. 
We're joined this week by Nizar Ibrahim. He's a paleontologist, anatomist, assistant professor of biology at the University of Detroit Mercy, National Geographic Explorer, and TED Fellow. And of course, you probably know him for his work on Spinosaurus, but he's done other cool stuff with dinosaurs as well. Thank you so much for joining us. We've been looking forward to this interview for quite a while now. My pleasure. Uh, okay, so diving right in, what first got you interested in Spinosaurus? Well, it is in many ways uh, the, the holy grail of dinosaur paleontology, <laughs> right? It's a really, really bizarre dinosaur. And for a very long time, we just had all these tantalizing clues, right? We had um, uh, a few drawings of the very first Spinosaurus skeleton described. And uh, all the bones of this original Spinosaurus skeleton were destroyed in World War II. Um, we knew that it was a very large dinosaur, probably even bigger than T-Rex. And we knew that it was a very strange dinosaur with uh, a giant sail on its back and crocodile-like jaws. And that was pretty much it for, you know, several decades. And so there was always a, a mystery I wanted to solve one day, right? In science, I think you always want to make a discovery mm -hmm. that is uh, shedding light on a big mystery, right? And, and we also, my team was really interested in, you know, exploring this particular part of the world because Africa is uh, really lagging behind other continents in terms of uh, its representation in, in paleontology. We know very little about Africa's age of dinosaurs. And so um, I always wanted to go to Africa and fill some of these big gaps in our knowledge. And that included, you know, resurrecting Spinosaurus and the strange world it lived in. So, you know, there are a number of reasons why I was interested in Spinosaurus. And the, you know, the historical background uh, was also an important factor. You know, Spinosaurus was uncovered by a, a pioneering German paleontologist, uh, Ernst Stromer. And uh, so I also got to, to do a lot of historical research on this paleontologist and his life and, and the loss of his fossil collection. And it's very dramatic. And so I always had this you know, desire to kind of follow in his footsteps and, and rediscover Spinosaurus and these other African dinosaurs he, he unearthed over 100 years ago. Yeah. So how did you, what was your first or maybe last step, I'm not sure, <laughs> in getting into <laughs> Africa looking for Spinosaurus? trying to actually find the material? Well, it was a long journey, I guess, you know. I, I knew that I wanted to be a paleontologist since I was about five years old. And it was always my goal to go to these far-flung places, places like the Sahara and, and unearthed dinosaurs like Spinosaurus. Uh, but of course, there are a few things you have to do before you can embark on your first expedition. Mm -hmm. So I got my um, undergraduate degree at the University of Bristol in geology and, and biology. I then um, embarked on a PhD project at the University College Dublin in Ireland, mm. which is kind of ironic. It's, it's one of the few places in the world that doesn't have any dinosaur <laughs> fossils, right, Ireland. But uh, uh, that's where I kind of crafted my plan to explore the Sahara, and that became the, the focus of my PhD thesis. And so I decided to explore a portion of the Sahara known as the Kemkem region in uh, the border region between Morocco and Algeria. And um, I decided to um, visit museum collections all around the world to look at uh, fossils of Saharan dinosaurs and other animals that lived alongside these dinosaurs. Um, and I also decided to start a series of expeditions 
which was a pretty daunting task <laughs> at the time. I was in my mid-20s, right? And it's um, there's no handbook that tells you how to lead an expedition to the Sahara, <laughs> right? It's not, there's no Sahara Expeditions uh, 101 course, right, at <laughs> university. And so I put together this, this very first expedition on a shoestring budget. And, um, you know, it was the first of many. And over the next few years, we uncovered thousands of incredible fossils um, of flying reptiles and crocodile-like hunters, and of course, dinosaurs, including a new skeleton of Spinosaurus, the only one in the world today. Yeah, that is amazing mm -hmm. and quite an achievement, especially for such an early paleontologist. Mm -hmm. Well, it was, I think, when we first described new remains of Spinosaurus, I think many people said, well, <laughs> you set the bar pretty high. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, I don't want to reveal too much, but, um, you know, of course, we ended up publishing um, what I think was an even bigger paper on Spinosaurus this year. Uh, in terms of, of the impact it has on our understanding of dinosaur biology. Uh, but we have a few other things, a few other manuscripts in preparation, and we have found some really amazing new field sites. And so I guess I can tell you that there are a number of really, really exciting discoveries in the pipeline. So, oh, good. Um, yeah, so there's more to come. That Stay is tuned. awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pumped. How did you end up picking going to the ChemChem beds rather than going to Egypt where the original Spinosaurus material was found? Well, we knew that the Baharia formation in Egypt, which is where the first Spinosaurus fossils were unearthed, they were actually unearthed by uh, Ernst Stromer's fossil collector, Richard Margraf, not by, his, uh, not by Stromer himself. We know that this geological package preserves fossils of animals that are very similar to animals we find in other parts of the Sahara. In fact, you know, we know that Spinosaurus remains are found all across the Sahara, in places like Algeria and Morocco. And the thing about the Moroccan outcrops is that there's a lot more exposure. The Baharia, the area that you can actually collect fossils in, in Egypt, is actually not that big. But in Morocco, you have rocks of, we think, pretty much the same age, and they're exposed over a much, much larger area. And also, it just seemed more doable in terms of the logistics. If you look at uh, places like uh, Libya today or, or also Egypt, which, you know, can be really complicated in terms of getting access to, to, to dig sites. Mm. Morocco just seemed like a safer option if your PhD thesis depends on it. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so, um, it was risky enough as it was because I basically set out to uncover new fossils from the ChemChem. And it's a very difficult place to find good fossils in. So it was already a pretty big uh, a gamble in many ways. So I didn't want to make it even riskier by going to Egypt or other places where maybe I wouldn't get all the necessary paperwork and, and what have you. Oh, yeah. Having said that, we're now in the process of expanding our scope. And, you know, I, I, um, I'm in frequent communication with colleagues in you know, Tunisia, Egypt and other places. So we're really going to um, tackle other areas of the Sahara in the, in the very near future. Awesome. Oh, that's great. I'm glad that you're going back to Egypt too, because we got a listener question that was basically, what do you think about the difference or potential differences between Spinosaurus that was in Egypt and Spinosaurus that was in the ChemCab beds? Do you have any thoughts about that? Well, um, I'm really, really glad that you bring this up <laughs> because this is a question that a couple of people have asked. I know that animals like Spinosaurus generate a huge amount of interest and discussions 
And you're not just not going to get those kinds of discussions and that level of interest if you're describing a new bivalve or ammonite, <laughs> right? But one of the things that people kept saying is like, oh, you know, this is, you know, so and so many thousands of miles away from the uh, Egyptian Spinosaurus site, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, can this be the same species? So here's the thing, two parts to, to my answer. One is that all the bones we have are a really good match to the ones um, from Egypt, um, as far as we can tell from the drawings and the photographs of the original Spinosaurus skeleton. Mm-hmm. And that includes the tailbones. Uh, Stroma had tailbones. They were just not very well preserved, but you know they're a perfect match for our uh, tailbones. But the other thing I would say is, if you look at the distribution of other dinosaurs, nobody seems to be bothered by the fact, for example, that T-Rex ranges from Texas all the way to Canada, right? <laughs> and so that kind of raises some questions. And the other thing is, look at the distribution of large animals today. Look at the geographical distribution, especially especially historical ranges of, say, lions or Nile crocodiles. Mm-hmm. You know, they range over huge parts of the African continent. So I really don't see why an animal the size of a Spinosaurus wouldn't range from, you know, you know, across North Africa. There's really no particularly good reason to say that it didn't. So I really don't think that's a big issue. That's a good answer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it makes sense. You're just saying how the Sahara is about as big as the continental U.S. So <laughs> Yeah, we've got plenty of animals that exist on the east and west coast. That's a... Uh... I was just thinking that because there's there's been a few debates online about Spinosaurus and your recent papers. I guess I was wondering because you mentioned comparing to modern animals. Can you talk a little bit about like the tail in the most recent paper and how you tested for it being able to paddle through water and everything? Yeah, sure. So the thing is, every part of the skeleton of Spinosaurus essentially has water loving written all over it right <laughs> so you look at the head and it you know it's an animal with long narrow jaws and conical teeth which are great for catching slippery prey uh, we know that spinosaurus had unusually dense bone which we know is important in buoyancy control in the water the hind limbs are reduced in size which again is something we see for example in the evolution of whales right we can see how the legs get shorter and shorter and essentially disappear. You just have remnants of hip bones in, in, in some uh, whales today. And of course, we know the Spinosaurus lived in a place that was full of giant fish. We're talking, you know, car-sized fish. <laughs> and so there was a lot of circumstantial evidence for Spinosaurus being uh, essentially a river monster, right? Uh, one key part that we're missing in our story, I guess, was... Um, a motor, you know, something to move this animal through the water. And uh, when we unearthed the the tail, which was, you know, almost complete, it's about 80% complete, we just couldn't believe our eyes, right? This was a tail that looks like a giant paddle, you know, it's uh, a fin-like structure. And so knowing what we know about Spinosaurus, of course, we thought, well, this must be the thing that actually propels this animal through the water. Mm-hmm. But rather than just focusing on our anatomical observations and, and, you know, our interpretations of the fossils, we specifically decided to team up with literally the best people on the planet to do this, um, to show quantitatively that this tail would actually provide a significant advantage. So we teamed up with George Lauder, who is like, you know, the, you know, Yoda of (laughs) aquatic locomotion, you know, he's just uh, uh, really, really 
good and 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 known all around the world for his work on um, fish tails and so on. And so when he looked at this, he was just like, oh my God, this is a tail that propels this animal through water, right? And so they did some testing and I saw the test set up in this water flume uh, tank where they basically compared different tail shapes, the shapes of other dinosaurs um, to spinosaurus. We also compared uh, the tails of some living animals to, to the tail of spinosaurus. And the main message you get from the testing is, yes, this tail provides a significant advantage in water. And to be honest, it's really hard to think of any other reason why an animal that basically looks like a river monster in all other aspects <laughs> of its anatomy would have such a tail. So it's consistent with all the evidence we have. It all points in the same direction. And so those were rigorous um, analyses. Having said that, of course, this is not the end of the Spinosaurus story. And we're um, going to do further testing. We're going to build highly sophisticated 3D models of this animal to really reconstruct in detail how this animal moved through the water. But this is, this is work that will take you know, years to do if you want to do it well, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's, there, there are lots of other interesting projects and, and, you know, and PhD projects for other students in, in this spinosaur skeleton because it's such an amazing dinosaur. Did you have like a favorite piece of paleoart or anything like uh, something that the paleoart showed you that you really appreciated? Well, there are just so many great pieces out there. It was just, I was actually, you know, I would scroll through pages and pages of paleo art like at one in the morning because that's usually the earliest I would I would actually have time to do that you know because we're working <laughs> on other papers and so on and I would just go like oh my god I've spent the last hour looking at these images I don't think I can do this anymore but there's so many amazing pieces of artwork in here and so I probably missed you know most of them but um there are just so many great ones I don't think I can really pick one that's great particular example but you know of course we have our own very talented artist Davide Bonadonna, mm -hmm. who is uh, really amazing. And he's going to illustrate many of our future finds. So he already knows about some of these other things we, we uncovered. <laughs> oh, nice. Um, so yeah, uh, there's some really great artwork coming from David in, in the next few months. Going back a little bit, it seems like you've been building a case. Slowly, like This last paper with the tail was the nail in the coffin, but there was a recent paper, was it, I think just before that, that was kind of talking about the marine environment, basically, that Spinosaurus was in. And then, of course, like the 2014 papers. So it seems like, would you say that you're kind of building a case? Like, does it seem likely that there are other dinosaurs that could have this kind of semi aquatic lifestyle? Well, I guess the other paper you're referring to is probably a paper we published just a, a week before the Spinosaurus paper that was kind of like a big overview of the ChemChem fossil assemblage mm -hmm. and it was really looking at everything and you know the environment uh everything from tiny little lizards to dinosaurs and it was a that uh, was largely based on my phd thesis and ended up being a 200 plus page monster <laughs> but uh yeah there was really just um kind of a holistic view of the chem chem so it wasn't really so much about spinosaurus it was really about you know, providing a proper geological framework for all of the fossils that are found there and, you know, the different a review of the taxonomy and so on. So, but as far as the Spinosaurus papers are concerned, yes, I guess in some ways we have been building up a case and, you know, that's just based on the fossils we, we find, you know, I mean, if we had found, uh, you know, other adaptations, you know, that's not the uh, idea we'd have, we would have pushed. But as I said, everything we find just builds 
up this picture of, you know, essentially a river monster, a dinosaur <laughs> going after large aquatic prey. Mm -hmm. And the tail was probably the, the most important piece in the sense that, you know, it strongly suggests that this animal was not, you know, a wader, just kind of wading into the water and waiting for a fish to, to swim by, which is a bit of a problematic strategy to begin with for a very large animal. And animals that do that today, like grizzly bears, for example, only spend a small amount of their time doing that. And not all grizzly bears do that, right? Uh, catching fish. And they also eat a lot of other things. But with an animal like Spinosaurus, I, I always felt like there was not really a, a very realistic strategy. And there, there's some other issues, which, which we're publishing in another upcoming paper, actually. But um, the tale shows us that this was an animal actively pursuing prey in the water column, right? And that's a big difference from a wader to an animal that's actively pursuing prey in the water. And as I said, the prey it was going after was, you know, in the XXL category, right? Really, really <laughs> big fish. Uh, that's another important thing to remember because some people said, oh, an animal the size of Spinosaurus, how could it catch fish if you're that big? You know, you're not going to be that fast. You only need to be faster than the prey you're after, right? <laughs> yep. It's a bit like when people are saying, oh, a T-Rex wasn't very fast, so it must have been a scavenger. Well, you only need to be as fast as a triceratops or yeah. an ankylosaur or something. And, you know, T-Rex could definitely do that. So I think that's an important thing to remember when we look at the size of Spinosaurus. But yeah, the tail uh, was kind of, you know, the, the big missing piece. There are other pieces of evidence. And one thing I should also add, I don't know if I ever said that in another interview, but I'll do this on, on your in this interview. So this Ooh. is a little piece of exclusive news, but we have other parts of the skeleton of Spinosaurus that have not been described yet. Ooh. Oh, nice. <laughs> is it from so, the same individual? It is from the same individual. Oh, nice. <laughs> so again, stay tuned. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That was, that was the idea. <laughs> now I just have to wait a few months. Yeah. Oh, just a few months. I'll oh, take it. Uh, yeah. It's not long at all. <laughs> You're very patient. We mentioned briefly how like Africa in particular is really underexplored and really underserved in a paleontological context. Yeah, I think, well, I think Africa is an interesting story because it's our planet's second largest landmass. And yes, it's a very important piece of the bigger picture. But when you look at, at the data sets we're using to reconstruct the Mesozoic and really the entire history of life on Earth, these data sets are heavily biased. And so they're mostly based on, on discoveries and museums and universities uh, located in places like North America and Europe. And we now have some more contributions from places like uh, China and, and Brazil and so on. But it's pretty obvious that Africa is severely lagging behind and so we're trying to fill these big gaps in our understanding, but we're also trying to do some capacity building in the developing world. And so for a long time, paleontological expeditions to Africa were essentially, you know, kind of in many ways performed a bit like in colonial times, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a bunch of Western scientists going in there. They will involve one or two local scientists, but, you know, in, in not in a serious um, manner and and then they'll just take the fossils out of the country so we're trying to take a very different approach we established a big research collection in casablanca in morocco so that's where all the spinosaurus bones are right now as we speak oh fantastic mm -hmm. and thousands of other chemchem -chem fossils this is in fact the best chemchem -chem fossil collection in the world right now so we established this research collection you know we involve moroccan scientists and students and we're trying very hard to um 
get museum projects in this part of the world off the ground. Awesome. You know, including a campus museum in Casablanca. And so for me, one very important aspect of, of you know, the, the kind of publicity our work, work is getting, the, the kind of visibility of our work is that it really draws attention to, uh, you know, Africa's incredible paleontological heritage. So for people in Morocco, for example, it's really important to see that, you know, discoveries from their country have such a big impact. You know, Spinosaurus was featured on the cover of Nature. That's the world's top scientific journal. And that makes people in places like Morocco listen, you know, they mm -hmm. go like, oh my God, this is apparently a big deal. Maybe we do need to, to, to do more to kind of protect our ancient paleontological heritage. So that's one of the things I'm trying to achieve to, to make sure that African countries can, can develop a more vibrant cultural landscape with museums and exhibits and also professionally curated collections. Um, but it's, it's, it's difficult. I'll admit that it's not easy. It's not, you know, knowing that the Spinosaurus bones are in Casablanca now, for example, is a, you know, a really great feel-good story, but it's challenging, you know, because you want to make sure that these fossils are kept under, you know, in a professionally curated collection for, for many more decades to come, you know, and that's not always easy. And we've seen in places like Syria and Iraq, what can happen to museums and archaeological sites, right? When things um, suddenly change, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's a pretty daunting challenge, but at the same time, I think that this is really a responsibility we have as paleontologists today. We can't just keep doing things like in colonial times, right? We really have to do more. I think we have some listener questions. Oh, yeah. if, we... if, if you have time. Yeah. So first, basically, if you think Baryonyx and Suchomimus were also very aquatic or were they maybe more in between, more semi-aquatic? Well, in many ways, uh, they seem to be more in between. And, you know, they obviously lived um, before Spinosaurus. And so you can see some features like the narrow jaws and what have you, but then other parts of the skeleton still look more or less like, like uh, what you would see in other predatory dinosaurs. Having said that, we're currently working on a, a paper that is going to directly address that question. So I can't reveal much more, <laughs> but I can tell you it's, it's very exciting. And nice. I better stop talking now because I know I'm going to give something away. So next question. <laughs> you mentioned a little bit how they're really big fish. And so that tells you about the food source of Spinosaurus. Uh, do you think that's enough to account for all the large predators we had in Northern Africa? Or do you think maybe there was something else that was allowing them all to exist in the same space? Well, um, it is true that this place, which I call the River of Giants for <laughs> obvious reasons, was home to an incredible dizzying diversity of giant fish, right? Huge coelacanths and giant sawfish and lungfish. And it's, it's really pretty amazing, you know? Sometimes we pick up fish scales that are so big, it's just kind of blows your mind. So that's certainly true. There are lots and lots of fish. Many of the predators we see, and actually that's true not just for the dinosaurs, but also for the pterosaurs and the crocs, we're relying on fish as their primary food source, right? And of course, we know that you know, many pterosaurs were probably fish eaters, but that partly explains what we're seeing. Another thing I would add is that the different predators are quite different in their skull architecture. So if you compare the skulls of you know, Spinosaurus and Carcharodontosaurus and so on, uh, you see pretty dramatic differences, right? So they're clearly you know, avoiding direct competition. Hmm. 
And one thing, so we know that most of the predators were fish eaters, but you're absolutely right. There's still some other predatory animals in that uh, strange world that probably would have mostly relied on um, things like other dinosaurs. And Stroma speculated about this. And then he was wondering, you know, what were they feeding on? Were they just feeding on other predatory dinosaurs, which is probably very unlikely. Um, that's not typically how food webs function. It's also not <laughs> consistent with what we know about um, the physiology of dinosaurs and so on. Although there are some present day examples, you know, there, there um, some cobras almost exclusively feed on other snakes, for example, right? Huh. So, so predators eating predators is not completely unheard of, but it's very, very rare. And it's not something we would expect in dinosaurs based on many, many different lines of evidence. But another possibility is that, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, the, this, this, this near shore river system, right? So this would have been the margin of Africa um, about 100 million years ago. And so it could be that this particular region, you know, this river system that was near the coast or was, you know, on the coast was not a particularly good environment for large plant-eating dinosaurs, you know, maybe just didn't have the kind of vegetation they needed and so on. But those are the places we're excavating. So maybe if you go further inland, so to speak, you would see a slightly different picture, right? Mm. But that's something we'll we'll have to to find out. Um, another thing I would add is that we do have so so large plant eating dinosaurs are very uh, rare compared to pretty much any other dinosaur assemblage we know, but they're not absent, and we found some bits and pieces of very large sauropod dinosaurs. So they were clearly not particularly frequent uh, visitors in this uh, river of giants, but Every now and then you, you stumble uh, over a sauropod bone and some of the pieces we have found belong to animals that were absolutely gigantic, you know, hmm. um, that would have weighed as much as an entire herd of elephants. Um, <laughs> a great meal. So, yes, exactly. So I think it probably would have been enough to, to feed uh, things like Cacarodontosaurus, you know, um, if, if most of the other predators are relying on fish primarily. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. So we have, um, I think, just a couple more. This one's really interesting, something I hadn't considered. I don't know if you've thought of it. It probably really helps that you've had a, a good look at the fossils compared with trying to piece together information from pictures. But one of our listeners is saying, when you look at the sort of sail shape, whether it's the fossils themselves or in the paleo art, it kind of has a back swept look to it. Mm -hmm. Is that, do we think that was a Spinosaurus trait, or could it have possibly been like a taphonomy issue, whereas there might have been more variability, or maybe it was more upright during lifetime? Well, our tail shape is entirely based on the fossils we found, as well as Stroma's sail. It just, you know, is, I think, the most accurate representation of the fossils we have. Having said that, you know, we have found a couple of isolated dorsals of spinosaurus in the past and i you know i i don't think that every spinosaurus individual had an absolutely identical sail shape right i think this mm -hmm. is I, I wouldn't be surprised if this is a feature that actually varied pretty drastically across individuals and it probably also changed uh when as the animals grew larger right so i i don't even know maybe a baby spinosaurus would have hatched without a sail out of the egg, right? It certainly would have been pretty awkward to fit a sail in, <laughs> in an egg, right? So, so I don't really, I know some people are very interested in 
not to say obsessed with uh, the <laughs> sail shape, but I really don't think it's, you know, it, it's, it probably varied quite a bit. And I know some people are wondering, you know, did it have a circular, a kind of, you know, um, more circular shape or, or did it have the little, the little dent or you know, mm-hmm. kind of saddle shape? Or as I said, you know, our reconstruction is based on the material we have. And, you know, if we find uh, other parts of the sail, we might revise it. But, you know, I don't think that the sail shape is really, you know, a feature that that looked exactly the same in different individuals. And then the final listener question, maybe the most relevant, is what are you working on next, if there's anything you want to share? <laughs> well, I hinted at a couple of uh, papers <laughs> we're working on. So, as I said, there's more to come on Spinosaurus. We have some... Uh, really cool new fossil material from a wide range of groups, from you know fish to crocs to flying reptiles. We also have one really, really exciting new site. And that site is completely different from all the other sites uh, we have worked in in the past. And I think we've got something really big there. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> <laughs> we'll have to find out. Find out. <laughs> can you can you give us a hint of where the site is? All right, if you insist. It's in Africa. <laughs> You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> in the Sahara Desert. You wow! See, I gave away too much. You guys are good. <laughs> so we've narrowed it down to an area the size of the U.S. <laughs> yeah, just because I'm so generous. Well, for our listeners, then where's the best place for them to learn more about you and your work online? The best place to learn about my work is, uh, well, National Geographic put together some some really great pieces. Actually, we brought one of their writers to the ChemChem last summer, Michael Greshko. And Michael is great. He's a fantastic team member. So I feel a little bad that we uh, made him suffer so much because we, um, <laughs> we were out there in July which is pretty hot in the Sahara. <laughs> oh, no. And so, um, you know, but he survived. Um, I, I, he's still tweeting, so clearly he's still alive. <laughs> I, and I promised Michael that the next time we go, uh, we're not going to go in July. And I'm going to keep that promise. You're going to go in so August. In August, that's right. <laughs> so, yeah, so Michael wrote this great article on the new tale. There are a couple of TED Talks I did I have my own website as well. Oh, great. What's that? It's just my name. If you just search for Nisa Ibrahim Paleontologist, it should be one of the first things that pops up. Great. So um, there's more to come. And uh, we're working on a number of interesting outreach projects as well. So that includes things like potential documentary films, exhibits, and so on. So we're just getting started. <laughs> yeah. That is well, amazing. It's like you said before we started recording, there's so many aspects here. You got historical, biological, and then outreach and so yeah. many things. <laughs> yeah. I think I think it's a it's a good time for, for paleontology outreach. But it's also a challenging one in some ways. I think, you know, scientific outreach in general is really important now. But the problem is that I alluded to this earlier on. I think it's difficult for some people to to kind of identify good, reliable information from someone's blog musings, right? And so mm-hmm. that's that's one challenge now with science communication. Um, you know, I mean, I do Nat Geo events, like as a speaker, Nat Geo live events, and that's great because you really have the time to engage with the audience and take them through the whole scientific process and so on. 
But um, there's also a lot of misinformation out there, not just in paleo, mm -hmm. but but even more so in other areas of science. And so, yeah, it's a it's a big challenge. But um, I think as scientists, we have to spend some of our time doing outreach and making sure the public remains interested in science and and also understand that science is very important in answering many many different questions. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for spending some of your outreach time yeah. on us. <laughs> we really appreciate it. Well, it was a lot of fun. I think it's great what you guys are doing. So keep up the good work. Thanks again, Nizar, not only for coming on our show and doing the interview with us, but also for all your work with Spinosaurus, because it is truly awe-inspiring and one of the greatest dinosaur stories I've ever heard of. So excellent in all regards. We look forward to the upcoming papers. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now, the moment you've all been waiting for, our dinosaur of the day is Spinosaurus. Although if you just listened to our interview with Nizar Ibrahim, we did cover a lot about Spinosaurus already. But we'll go deeper in this segment. There's a lot of history here to get into. Yes. So, yeah, buckle up. It's going to be long. <laughs> Spinosaurus was a spinosaurid that lived in the Cretaceous in what is now North Africa, and it's one of the largest known carnivorous dinosaurs. It's estimated to be up to 59 feet long, which is about 18 meters, and weigh 20 tons, though new estimates from 2014 and 2018 suggested it could be between 49 and 52 feet long, or 15 to 16 meters, and weighs 6.4 to 7.5 tons. Is another case of a shrinking dinosaur, which often happens. The estimates get a little more realistic as time goes on. Mm -hmm. But it is comparable in size to T. rex, at least lengthwise. Spinosaurus had a long, low, narrow skull similar to a modern crocodile. So it wasn't short and high like other theropods that had large bite forces. Spinosaurus had a narrow snout, and the tip of the top of the snout rounded up a little bit to fit the lower jaw. And you see this in crocodiles. It's so they can grip smaller prey like slippery fish. It's one of the only dinosaurs that has a bit of an underbite. Yes. <laughs> a complete snout from the chemchem beds estimates the skull length of Spinosaurus of about 69 inches or 175 centimeters. Although the skull length by Ibrahim and others was closer to 63 inches or 160 centimeters. Still large. Yeah. Spinosaurus had a small crest in front of its eyes. Again, the tip of the snout was expanded, and it had large front teeth. The nostrils were high up in front of the eyes, which is unusual for carnivores, because usually the nostrils are in front of the snout. 
And this nostril placement may be based on how Spinosaurus lived, which was that it was semi-aquatic. Spinosaurus had straight conical teeth that were serrated. However, the teeth could not crush bone. The teeth were narrow and sharp, and the largest teeth stuck out from the tip of the snout and the sides. Spinosaurus had a long, muscular neck that curved in an S-shape, and it had large shoulders and large, stocky forelimbs. On its hands, it had three fingers each, and there was a large claw on the first digit of each hand. The other digits had reasonably sized claws as well. Yeah, just this one was much larger. (laughs) Yeah. The fingers were long, the claws were somewhat recurved, and its hands may have been longer compared to other spinosaurids. Compared to other large theropods, Spinosaurus had a smaller hip bone. Its hind limbs were about 25% of its total body length, and its tibia was longer than its femur. In general, its legs were shorter than other theropods. Mm-hmm. The fourth toe, the hallux, touched the ground too, which was unlike other theropods. And its toes had shallow claws with flat bottoms, similar to shorebirds, and that may mean that Spinosaurus's feet were webbed. There is a lot of debate over how much time Spinosaurus spent in the water, and we will get to that. But for now, let's talk about the spines. So Spinosaurus had neural spines on the back that were about 5.4 feet or 1.65 meters long, and they were probably connected by skin, making it sail-like. These neural spines were a little longer front to back at the base. Some scientists, however, think that instead of a sail, the spines were covered in fat and formed a hump. If it was a sail, though, there'd be a membrane of skin and thin tissue. In 2014, Ibrahim and others suggested that the spines were covered by skin, like a crested chameleon, and due to compactness and sharp edges, it probably had poor blood flow. Spinosaurus's neural spines are much larger than the neural spines of other spinosaurids. The sail on its back may have been for thermoregulation or display, so to attract mates or intimidate rivals or make it look larger. If it was for thermoregulation, it had a lot of blood vessels, so they could have used the large surface area to absorb heat so that it would not overheat. Spinosaurus was so large that it had effects of gigantothermy. So basically, it was so big that when it produced heat from moving around or digesting food or something, that its body tissue, even if it wasn't blubber or something intended to keep heat in, all that extra mass around it would keep heat in, so it might have been in danger of overheating, and thus the help of having a sail for reducing that. Yes. The sail also may have helped it warm its blood enough to counter the cold waters that Spinosaurus spent its time in. Oh, that's a fun idea. Mm -hmm. And of course, it could be for both display and thermoregulation. Mm -hmm. Doesn't necessarily have to be either or. So Spinosaurus spent time in river systems in North Africa in the Cretaceous, so what is now North Africa. This may mean that Spinosaurus lived in climates where the night temperatures were cool and then in the day it wasn't too cloudy. So it's possible that the sail radiated excess heat from the body instead of collecting it, and that would have cooled it down. Bailey thought that the sail could have absorbed more heat than it radiated and suggested that Spinosaurus and other dinosaurs with long neural spines had fatty humps to store energy or insulate or shield them from the heat. If Spinosaurus' neural spines were for display, Ernst Stromer, who named Spinosaurus, thought that the size of the neural spines may have been for sexual dimorphism. In other words, the males may have had a huge sail to impress females. Yes. But the females might not have had them or had smaller ones. 
Stromer did compare Spinosaurus neural spines to bison and some chameleons and other lizards. Bison uh, had spines covered in muscle and fat. They form a hump. But he also thought it was unlikely for a predator and thought Spinosaurus probably had a sail. Spinosaurus was mounted in the Paleontological Museum in Munich, more on the was later, and it had a short, very arced sail. And then in 1936, Stromer rearranged the vertebrae to be longer, and then the sail had a more gentle slope. Jack Bailey in 1997 supported this buffalo back hypothesis of the spines and suggested that Spinosaurus, Oranosaurus, and other dinosaurs with long neural spines had shorter, thicker neural spines to those found in animals with sails, and that the neural spines were similar to humpbacked mammals, such as bison. So if it was a hump, it could store energy. Or it may have stored fat during seasons when fish swam upstream to spawn so it could get by the rest of the year with less food. And Spinosaurus may have had to travel to search for fish for long periods. The camel dinosaur. Yeah. (laughs) The hump could also have been for display if it was a hump. The fat hump shows that it was well-fed and a successful predator and then more likely would have been chosen to be a mate. But anyway, back to the sail idea because that is more widely accepted. Gimsa and others in 2015 suggested that the Spinosaurus sail was like the dorsal fins of sailfish, and they were for hydrodynamics. They said that the dorsal neural spines formed a roughly rectangular shape, similar to sailfish, and so it may have used its long, narrow tail to stun prey like a thresher shark. And I should say, the way we viewed Spinosaurus's tail in 2015 is different from how we see it now. Oh, yeah. Sailfish herd schools of fish into a bait ball, and they trap the fish so they can snatch them with their bills, and they use as a screen to encircle the prey. The dorsal sail would have helped Spinosaurus with moving sideways, the neck and tail, like sailfish and thresher sharks. And we discussed this similarity, or really lack of similarity, between Spinosaurus and sailfish and their respective sails in the extended version of our interview, which is available to all of our patrons. So if you're interested in hearing more about the comparison between sailfish and Spinosaurus, definitely check out the extended version of our interview with Nizar in our premium content feed on Patreon. Yes. Spinosaurus had short legs for its body. Originally, Spinosaurus was thought to be bipedal, Now, I think it's thought to be quadrupedal, at least facultative, so if it needed to be, it could. It may have crouched in a quadruped posture. Ibrahim and others in 2014 found that the hind limbs of Spinosaurus were shorter than thought, and the center of mass was in the midpoint of the trunk region, not near the hip, like in bipedal theropods. So they thought that Spinosaurus was poorly adapted for walking on land and would have been quadrupedal on land. Its pelvis was also smaller than previously thought, which meant less space for large leg muscles. In 2018, Henderson found that Spinosaurus was probably fine walking on two legs on land, and its center of mass was close to the hips and that it could be bipedal. So there's a lot of debates over pretty much every aspect of Spinosaurus. Spinosaurus had a long, narrow tail with its own tall, thin neural spines and long chevrons, so that made a flexible fin or paddle-like structure. Scientists used to think that the sail on the back extended to the sail on the tail. But as of this year, 2020, Ibrahim and others found that the tail was deep and narrow with a paddle or fin-like shape, like newts and crocodilians. The 2020 paper about the tail, which we did cover in an earlier episode, Garrett did in, as part of the news, it describes neural spines and deep chevrons on the tail, which had a broad paddle shape. Let's start with the thin spines on the tail They were thin compared to the back. The back spines are broad. 
The tail spines are thin in all directions and they're long. They're about a third the length of the spines on the back. So there's not a smooth transition between the tail spines and the back spines. The shortest spines are just behind the hips. The tail is asymmetric as well. The top has long, thin spines and the bottom has deep chevrons. So on the bottom, it's this flexible, ordinary looking tail, but then on the top, it's tall and thin and the tail vertebrae overlap less. The tail was flexible and it could move side to side, so it wasn't a stiff tail, and that would have helped Spinosaurus propel itself through the water. This broader, bulkier tail may mean that the center of mass of Spinosaurus was shifted back, and bipedal walking would have been a little bit easier. The model shows the center of mass in front of the hips, but close enough to still be bipedal. The 2014 study by Ibrahim and others found Spinosaurus had dense bones, which is common in animals that swim a lot because greater bone density helps with buoyancy so it can swim under the surface. They also found the feet to be flat-bottomed. So originally, Spinosaurus was thought to be bipedal and have a tripod posture and a hump. From the 1990s to 2014, Spinosaurus was thought to be this long, lightly built theropod so we moved a little away from this tripod posture with a sail or a hump on its back. And sometimes in that period, it's depicted with a more round sail on its back, sort of the Jurassic Park 3 model. Mm -hmm. It's a good time capsule of that time period. Yeah. The 2014 model changed things, though. That's when it showed it with this crocodile-like skull and the sail on the back and as an obligate quadruped. But the accuracy of the 2014 model has been questioned because it's a composite of different Spinosaurus individuals and other Spinosaurids. John Hutchinson warned that could result in it being inaccurate. Scott Hartman thought that the legs and the pelvis were too short. Mark Whitten agreed with the proportions in the paper, however, after talking to Ibrahim and Simone. There's also been debate on the size of the hind legs of Spinosaurus. Baryonyx and Suchomimus are thought to have hind legs like other theropods, but reconstructions are based on subadults and juveniles, so it's possible that their hind legs shrank proportionally as they matured. It's possible that Spinosaurus was more advanced and specialized than other Spinosaurids. So, to recap, Spinosaurus had dense limb bones, long forelimbs, flat feet, tiny nostrils high on its snout, short legs, large claws on its hands, elongated jaws, and conical teeth. The flat feet would help it walk over soupy substrate so it wouldn't get stuck. Possibly they were webbed. And it also had a sensitive snout so it could hone in on prey underwater. And it had a flexible tail that could propel it through water. So based on all of these characteristics, Spinosaurus probably spent most of its time in the water. The big debate is how deep was it in the water at this point? Yes. How semi-aquatic versus aquatic was it? Yes. And as of the latest paper in 2020, there's still a lot of debate over Spinosaurus. Mark Witten said, quote, Our science on this unusual dinosaur is in its infancy and forming robust ideas about its swimming pose and capability is going to take time, end quote. In 2018, Donald Henderson suggested that Spinosaurus was not semi-aquatic. He created 3D models of Spinosaurus and other dinosaurs to test the centers of mass buoyancy and equilibrium of animals in freshwater, so baryonyx, T-rex, allosaurus, Struthiomimus, and Coelophysis. He studied the buoyancy in the lungs of crocodilians as well, and then compared it to Spinosaurus's lung placement, and found that Spinosaurus couldn't sink or dive below the water surface, and it also would have been able to keep its head above the water surface while floating like other non-aquatic theropods. 
Yeah, so it would have had to exhale most of its air in order to dive, which is still possible, but it would have had to exhale more than crocodilians do, which he thought was unlikely, so maybe it just wasn't in the water. He also found that Spinosaurus had to paddle its hind legs to keep it from tipping over to the side, which modern semi-aquatic animals don't need to do. And he modeled this and tested the model with alligator Mississippiensis and emperor penguins. So he found that Spinosaurus could float with its head above water, and other dinosaurs had similar results. This is compared to alligators, which returned to their original topside position when they were tipped to the side. Basically, semi-aquatic animals can self-right themselves. But the Spinosaurus model rolled over to the side when it was tipped, so maybe it would have easily tipped over and then would have had to use its limbs to stay upright in the water. So Henderson then suggested that Spinosaurus probably didn't compete to hunt in water, but would have spent time on land or in shallow water. But again, that was in 2018. And we're expecting an updated Spinosaurus model to come out any day now. True. Ibrahim Pierce, Lauder, and Serino and others in 2018 studied Spinosaurus's tail and found that it was keeled and well-adapted to propelling it through water. They found that the elongated neural spines in chevrons meant it could swim in a similar way to modern crocodiles, so it could have been in the water for long periods of time to hunt. A juvenile specimen found in 1999, described by Simone Maganuco and Cristiano Del Sasso, found that it developed semi-aquatic adaptations at a young age or maybe even at birth. And that specimen was about 5.8 feet or 1.78 meters long. So going back to the tail, the tail could probably have helped it with propelling underwater like modern crocodiles, but not all scientists agree on this. Some think that the thin bones at the end of the tail made it not as flexible as a crocodile's. Others think that it being a stiff paddle underwater could make sense, but that Spinosaurus wasn't necessarily a predator that pursued prey often, and there could be other reasons for its weird tail. In 2016, Vulo, Allen, and Kevin suggested Spinosaurus would be able to adapt in the water like eels, and that's based on convergence in the shapes of jaws and teeth in Spinosaurus and pike conger eels, but they didn't say anything about Spinosaurus being semi-aquatic. Spinosaurus probably lived in something similar to the mangrove swamps of today's Florida Everglades. That's based on roots found growing from the lagoonal muds in marine sands, and that only happens in mangrove swamps. So mangroves, that means there's seawater that's calm, the temperatures are warm, and there's low-energy shorelines. So Spinosaurus lived in a humid environment with mudflats and the mangrove forests. And it was also an area covered with sprawling lakes, rivers, and deltas. It's possible Spinosaurus only came onto land to lay eggs or moved to a different river and then spent the rest of its time in water. Other dinosaurs that lived at the same time and place as Spinosaurus were Titanosaurs, like Paralatitan and Egyptosaurus. And other animals included fish, crocodilomorphs, lizards, turtles, pterosaurs, and plesiosaurs. Fish found in the same fossil formations include lungfish, giant coelacanths, and large sawfish. Spinosaurus probably ate fish. So Cherig and Milner suggested that Baryonyx, another Spinosaurid, ate fish, based on being similar to crocodilians. Baryonyx has also been found with fish scales and juvenile iguanodon bones in its stomach. A Spinosaur tooth in a pterosaur bone in South America suggests that Spinosaurs also preyed on pterosaurs, maybe during dry seasons. Or at least scavenged them. Right. Spinosaurus was probably a general and opportunistic predator, but it may have been biased to fishing. So that would mean it probably scavenged and then ate a lot of smaller, medium-sized prey, and it never would have given up an easy meal. 
In 2009, Del Sasso and others looked at foramina, small passages that lead to the same cavity in the snout, and found probably pressure-sensitive receptors that could tell motions of fish when they swam through water, so it would have created pressure waves. So Spinosaurus could know when fish were around and when it was best to attack them. Without even looking. Yeah. Just sensing them through the big nose. Yes. In 2013, Andrew Cuff and Emily Rayfield found via biomechanical data that Spinosaurus was not an obligate piscivore, so it didn't have to eat fish, and that its diet changed as it grew up. Spinosaurus jaws were not adapted well to resist lateral bending compared to baryonyx and modern alligators, so probably ate fish more than land animals. In 2010, Romain, Amiel, and others did an isotope analysis and found that oxygen isotope ratios of spinosaurid teeth, including of spinosauruses, had a semi-aquatic lifestyle. The ratios were closer to those of turtles and crocodilians. So it may have switched between terrestrial and aquatic habitats to compete for food with large crocodilians and other large theropods. But these oxygen isotopes showed exposure to aquatic environments for long periods of time. Spinosaurus' teeth were more widely spaced apart than other theropods, and its teeth interlock like a fish trap. They were good for puncturing and tearing. It could grab its prey and then yank its head violently up and down, ripping out chunks, according to Hans Dieter Seuss. If you've ever seen a crocodilian, like a Nile crocodile, do this move, you know what we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> so Spinosaurus may have been specialized to hunt for fish at the edge of rivers or to swim and hunt. The higher nostrils mean that it could breathe while its snout was in the water, but it probably didn't have a good sense of smell. It also wouldn't have needed it when going after fish. The type species of Spinosaurus is Spinosaurus aegypticus, or Spinosaurus aegyptiacus. And now we get to the crazy history part. So Spinosaurus was first discovered in Egypt in 1912, and then described by Ernst Stromer in 1915. The genus name means spine lizard, and Spinosaurus aegypticus means Egyptian spine lizard. There's a potential second species, also a long story, <laughs> Spinosaurus moroccanus, and that means Moroccan spine lizard. Some scientists also think Sigilmosaurus is a synonym of Spinosaurus, but not everyone agrees. The holotype of Spinosaurus included ribs, gastralia, vertebrae, teeth, dentaries, left maxilla, and neural spines. So again, starting at the beginning with Ernst Stromer. Stromer went to the Baharia Oasis in Egypt in 1911. That wasn't his first visit to Egypt, however. His first expedition in Egypt was in 1901. So what happened was George Schweinfurth founded the Royal Geographical Society of Egypt in the late 1800s, and he was an archaeologist, geologist, and botanist who discovered mammals and other fossils, and that led Stromer to his first expedition there. Some background on Egypt, because it impacted the history of Spinosaurus. Egypt was in a lot of debt and in 1876 formally declared bankruptcy. A few years later, there was a nationalist uprising and Britain stepped in, and Britain and France ruled as its creditors. Then Britain ruled Egypt as a protectorate, and they solemnized this in the arrangement in the 1904 Entente Cordiale. France got Morocco and then Egypt went to Britain. So Stromer had to get his permits from the British authorities to dig. On November 7th in 1910, Stromer landed in the port of Alexandria, Egypt, but then he had to be in quarantine for two days because somebody on board was suspected to have cholera. So the cargo was unloaded, but the passengers were still on board. 
Ernst Stromer was a baron, a gentleman, from Nuremberg in Bavaria. He was also an associate professor at the University of Munich, and he was 40 years old in 1910. At the time, he was accompanied by scientist Dr. Lukes, who brought his wife. Stromer was not married yet, and he thought that the journey was too difficult with a wife, so he didn't like his companions that much. They didn't get along. On November 9th, they all got off the boat, and then on November 10th, they took a train to Cairo. At the time, German geologist Karl Alfred von Zittel was a mentor and thesis advisor to Stromer. He published the Rolfs Expedition, which produced a reliable but incomplete geological map of the Western Desert which did help Stromer. In Cairo, Stromer went to George Steindorf's office, a German Egyptologist, as a courtesy call and to help plan his expedition. Steindorf in 1901 had visited several oases of the Western Desert, including Baharia. On November 15th, Stromer was still missing Richard Markgraf, a man from Austria who lived in the desert now and collected fossils commercially and sold them to paleontologists and museums, mostly in Europe. Markgraf and Stromer had met in the winter of 1901 and 1902, and Markgraf was Stromer's fossil collector, Samler, for a decade and a half, as well as a friend. Markgraf was an itinerant musician that, at the time. He was also ill and penniless. So that's how he ended up setting up as a commercial collector of fossils and other natural collectibles in Egypt. Before World War I, Markgraf is the one who managed to ship fossils to Munich for Stromer to prepare and study but they ended up being badly damaged and didn't get to Munich until well after the war. Markgraf kept collecting for Stromer during World War I, between 1911 and 1914, but the conflict severed their contacts, and Markgraf ended up dying in 1916. So at this point in 1910, Markgraf was often sick. Could have been malaria or intestinal bleeding from typhoid or chronic amoebic dysentery. So Stromer was worried about him and the fact that he couldn't find him in November of 1910. Stromer also got in an argument with Dr. Lukes and then offered to provide him with half the expedition's water containers and supplies so that he could go on his own journey and be rid of each other. There was tension between Germany and Britain at the time, so it took a while for Stromer to get his permits to go into the desert. He finally left on his expedition November 18th, and at that point, he had reunited with Markgraf. Stromer at the time was looking for early mammals in North Africa, like early whales and sea cows and land mammals. He thought that mammals, including humans, originated in Africa, not Europe, which went against the popular thought at the time. Stromer, luckily for us, kept very detailed journals. In December of 1910, he met his then-future wife, but he didn't marry her until 1920. They had three sons together. And then he went back to Cairo on December 21st. Markgraf was ill again and couldn't go with Stromer to Bahari Oasis, but Stromer didn't speak much Arabic, so he still needed help. The budget for his 1910 to 11 expedition was 18,000 German marks, and that included shipping. Stromer came from an aristocratic family, but was not that wealthy. Stromer needed a replacement for Markgraf, so someone recommended a gentleman Hartman. It took Stromer two days to locate him, but he didn't get along. So he didn't get along with a lot of people on this trip. Anyway, he found a dragoman, a guide and translator, Mr. Mohammed Hazranin El Hitu. It took Stromer a while to secure permits from the British, French, and Egyptian authorities to travel to the Western Desert. Then New Year's Eve of 1910, he took a train to Medinet El Fayoum. And that's where he met Mr. Mohammed, who had actually worked with him in 
earlier expeditions, but as a servant. So he hired him for the trip, but he didn't trust him. He was a bit of a colonialist snob, and he didn't like that Mr. Muhammad was trying to rise, quote-unquote, above his station. Yikes. Yeah. However, Stromer made it deep into the desert by noon the next day. So January 11th, he was in Bahari Oasis, and he found dinosaurs. So this is now two months after he got there? He got there in, in November, you said? Mm-hmm. It was a long trip. He had his base of operations in the Bahari Oasis, but there was a sandstorm. So he explored, but he couldn't find too much. Then on January 14th, 1911, he found three large bones. So he cut up mosquito netting and soaked them in a flour and water paste to cover the two larger bones. This actually might have been maybe January 18th instead of the 14th. There's conflicting sources. But he wrote in his journal, he, he found, quote, three large bones, which I attempt to excavate and photograph. And then later he found more bones, including a gigantic claw. He wrote in his journal, quote, apparently these are the first of Egypt's dinosaurs, and I have finally before me the layer that contains land animals, end quote. So he went there looking for mammals, and he found dinosaurs. But logistically... It wasn't clear how to preserve and collect these fossils. The desert's really destructive for exposed fossils. In February, they packed up specimens in eight wooden crates with the help of Markgraf, who had recovered by this time, and then arranged to ship them to Munich. And then Ernst Stromer was in Munich at home by February 23rd. Markgraf kept excavating fossils in the winters of 1912 and 1913, and he ended up finding a partial, what would be named, Spinosaurus skeleton in 1912 in the Bahario Formation in Western Egypt. On Stromer's instructions, Markgraf finally closed excavations in April of 1914 and then returned to Cairo to ship his fossils to Munich. That was about one month before World War I. So Markgraf had a hard time getting Anglo-Egyptian authorities to cooperate. They did not trust him and Stromer because Stromer was German. Markgraf, unfortunately, would only get paid once his fossils were delivered successfully to Munich. After the war broke out, Stromer wrote to British and Egyptian authorities begging for his fossils, but it didn't work. And then Markgraf died, and his wife was desperate, so she wrote to Stromer. Stromer appealed to his British friends at the Geological Survey of Egypt, and they paid Markgraf's widow a fee and then took the 12 cases of fossil material for safekeeping. And then eventually, Stromer got the fossils in 1922. So about a decade after they got out of the ground? Yes. But that didn't stop Stromer from publishing. So meanwhile, he wrote monographs on the geology of the Bahari Oasis and then pieced together fossils that Markgraf had shipped in 1912. In 1915, he officially named Spinosaurus Egypticus. In World War I, Stromer served as a male nurse. He had medical training. And then he became a military geologist at the Geological Survey in Strasbourg, which was German territory. And his geological skills were valuable to tactical planners. I never thought of that. When you're digging lots of trenches, geologists are useful. Yeah, that's true. So Stromer returned to Munich November 1st, 1919, and got an appointment to the Bavarian State Collection of Paleontology and Historical Geology. After the war, however, there were food shortages in Munich and food riots and violence, so Stromer went home to Nuremberg. In the winter of 1919 to 1920, he taught at the city's commercial college and retreated to his family's nearby castle and estate that had food because of the lands and farm. In October of 1920, 
He was back in Munich with his wife, Elizabeth Renenbaum, and then promoted to chief conservator of the Bavarian State Collection of Paleontology and Historical Geology, and then nine months later made an honorary professor of paleontology at the University of Munich. So July 23rd, 1921, he became a full member of the Bavarian Academy of Sciences. He worked with international scientists to get his fossils from Egypt, but because of inflation, Stromer couldn't afford to ship them. So a former pupil of his, Bernhard Payer, paid Cairo officials to have the crate shipped, and they arrived in the summer of 1922. But the fossils were, as Stromer later said, quote, badly smashed up. In Cairo, the staff at the Museum of the Geological Survey had unpacked and examined the fossils and then done a poor job repacking them. Stromer knew he probably wouldn't go back to Egypt. Markgraf was dead at this point, and Stromer was poor because of Germany's conditions after the war. In 1936, he provided a reconstruction of Spinosaurus with a sail and a skull similar to a megalosaur or allosaur, though he knew it had a peculiar lower jaw. Stromer compared this specimen to a crested chameleon because of the neural spines or sails. He gave Spinosaurus a more than eight-foot sail an elongate trunk, massive forelimbs, a long neck, and a long skull, and showed that it may have been quadrupedal on land. But Spinosaurus led to what's known as Stromer's Riddle, where it was found there were multiple carnivores in the area, yet the carnivores didn't seem to compete for prey, so the riddle was, how was this possible? And it wasn't until many years later that we figured it out. So Spinosaurus was mounted at the wall at the Paleontological Museum in Munich, And then the Nazis came to power, and Stromer openly resisted the Nazi regime. However, he was an aristocrat, so that protected him. In 1930, Stromer was head of the paleontology section of the Bavarian State Collection of Paleontology and Historical Geology, but his career stalled because he didn't join the Nazi party and he spoke out against Nazis, and he also kept close relationships with Jewish friends and associates. That's a nice legacy. Yeah. There were many paleontologists who were relieved to find this out. (laughs) July 7th of 1937, Stromer was 65 years old and then forced to retire from the university and the state collection. He stayed in Munich and remained a fellow of the Bavarian Academy of Sciences, and he kept doing research and publishing papers. The Nazis during that time made sure that every institution in Germany was headed by loyal party members, which is why they made him retire. This meant that the director of the Bavarian State Collection Post went to Karl Berlin in 1940, after Stromer's friend Ferdinand Brawley reached his mandatory retirement age, and Berlin was an ardent Nazi. Stromer kept demanding Berlin to remove the Bavarian State Collection from the museum and put it into a protected location far from Munich. But Berlin kept dismissing him. He didn't think that Munich or Germany would be attacked, and that's based on Luftwaffe chief Hermann Göring. Even when the fine art and science museums throughout Germany removed collections to caves and salt mines, Berlin didn't change his mind. Brawley, who was still an emeritus at the museum, quietly removed small specimens from the museum in his briefcase. (laughs) And he stored them in Princess Theresa zu Ottegen Spielberg's castle, who was an ally. She was a paleontologist and noblewoman, but he couldn't transfer a lot of the collection, especially any bigger pieces. So Stromer kept demanding... But Berlin threatened Stromer at least twice that he would move him to a concentration camp. Berlin reported Stromer to Nazi authorities, but they didn't take direct action. What happened was Stromer had three sons, Ullmann, who was born in 1921, Wolfgang, born in 1922, and Gerhard, born in 1927. Ullmann and Wolfgang were sent to the Russian front as soon as they were conscripted, and Ullmann was killed November 10th of 1941. 
Wolfgang survived until November of 1944 and then disappeared somewhere into Russia. Stromer and his wife by then had retreated to Grunsberg. And April 24, 1944, Stromer learned of the Royal Air Force bombing in Munich that destroyed his life's work, including the Spinosaurus holotype. It's a terrible few years for him. Yes. And a lot of Europeans, I suppose. Yes. On April 25th of 1945, Gerhard died within months of being assigned to a battalion fighting Allied forces in northern Germany. And then less than two weeks after his death, Germany surrendered. The Royal Air Force bombing of Munich, of course, that happened. It ended at 1.40 a.m. on April 25th. More than 200 Lancasters dropped hundreds of bombs, and more than 7,000 buildings near the train station were in flames. The museum was on fire, the collection was destroyed, and of course, again, that includes Stromer's Spinosaurus. However, there are still detailed drawings and descriptions. After World War II, paleontologists were more conscientious about making casts of fossils in case the originals were destroyed because of this. So Stromer, again, he had moved to his family's land, so he was not in Munich at the time. He still wrote and published scientific monographs into his late 60s. And then May 5th of 1950, Wolfgang, his son, who was referred to as missing at the Russian front during the war, returned. He was a physicist, and the Russians apparently kept pressuring him to produce poison gas after they captured him. He refused, and then he was put in multiple prison camps in Siberia for years. Stromer was 80 years old when Wolfgang came home, and he lived long enough to learn that his son and his wife, who he married shortly after, would have a daughter. So at least there's that. I think there was some things I read where he seemed to be holding out until his son came home. That's nice. He died at age 82, December 18th of 1952. So after that, not much was known about Spinosaurus for many years. There were Spinosaurid remains that were first identified as Spinosaurids in Tunisia from the Lower Cretaceous in 1988. They were found in 1912 by Pervinkier, but they were thought to be reptile fossils. And then in 1951, LaParent thought that they were dinosaurs. And then the 80s, we knew they were Spinosaurid. The teeth are different. It was thought to be other reptiles. And briefly in 1978, thought to be plesiosaur teeth. They do have a certain aquatic nature about them. <laughs> it's true. In 1987, drawings of the Spinosaurus holotype were compared to Baryonyx, which had a crocodile-like skull. And then in 1998, Suchomimus was described and named from Niger, and it had tall, narrow spines. And then an international expedition in the Sahara Desert in 1995 found more Spinosaurus fossils in the Chemchem region, including isolated teeth and fused nasals. And the Chemchem region is in Morocco and Algeria. Dentary fragments, cervical vertebra, and a dorsal neural arch found in the northern part of the Chemchem region led to Dale Russell naming Spinosaurus moroccanus in 1996. And Russell and Torquett described a partial snout in 1998. But again, the validity of Spinosaurus moroccanus is debated. There was other Spinosaurus material in 2003. Milner described an incomplete snout and left dentary that was at the Natural History Museum of London. In 2005, Del Sasso and others reported a snout found by locals in 1975 and said that it was Spinosaurus aegypticus. But before we get to 2005, we have to go back to Spinosaurus in 1999. So... January 1999, Jennifer Smith, a doctoral candidate in Penn's Department of Earth and Environmental Science, was studying the geology of Egypt's Baharia Oasis, which is about 180 to 190 miles from Cairo, for evidence of climate change and hominid and human habitation. 
she brought along her fellow doctoral student, Joshua Smith, who was also her fiancé, to accompany her for five weeks because she needed a man to be with her in a Muslim country, and her dissertation advisor couldn't make it that year. So Joshua Smith was a trained sedimentologist who'd always wanted to see Egypt, and actually the year before that, 2004, he and Matt Lamana tried to find a way to go. Uh, Lamana knew somebody who was working in the area, and then of course Stromer had found his fossils there. Josh, however, studied vertebrate paleontology, and he needed a reason to go to get his PhD advisor, Peter Dodson, to agree to the trip. Jen's research site passed through where Ernst Stromer had found Spinosaurus, so Josh negotiated, and they settled on three days of the five-week trip for him to search for Stromer's lost dinosaurs. Of course, they had low expectations because there were no maps or known photographs of the sites, but there were notes about where he excavated and descriptions of landforms. He got really lucky, and he found a bone— 10 inches in diameter, one foot long, on his first morning while driving around. And then he found 20 accumulations of bones by the end of the first day. So he had found Jebel Aldist, or Gebel Aldist. It's a distinct landform, and it was actually Stromer's isolated cone-shaped hill. So they found a lot of bones, and Josh knew that he needed to go back for more excavating, but he needed funding. So once he was back in Philadelphia, Josh had drinks with R. Scott Winters, a PhD candidate in biology who was involved in the Explorers Club, which was founded in 1904 to promote field research and scientific exploration. Winters was also a partner in a film production company that made science and expedition-based documentaries. So he got a deal with $50,000 to fund the first field season between January and February of 2000 in exchange for the rights to make the documentary in association with Winter's company, Last Word Productions. They made the film, and it premiered in 2002. It's called The Lost Dinosaurs of Egypt. And with the funding, they had 21 people, and they excavated for six weeks. And the people included Josh Smith, Jen Smith, Peter Dodson, Matt Lamana, Kenneth Lacavera, Jason Poole, and volunteers, as well as the film crew. Jen Smith's PhD advisor, Bob Gagengak had a network working as a geologist in Egypt, and they formed a partnership with Cairo Geological Museum and the Egyptian Geological Survey and Mining Authority for exclusive excavation rights in the Bahari Oasis for five years. They agreed that half of the fossils they excavated would go to Philadelphia, and the other half would stay in Cairo. So this team arrived in Egypt January 11th, 2000, and they set up headquarters at El Beshmo Lodge, a cushy place they described because they could have hot showers almost every day and toilets that flushed. The rooms had tile floors and someone cooked them food. Jen Smith said in an article about it, quote, normally we work based out of a mud brick hut with a dirt floor and a pit toilet and there's no running water. That's what I'm used to. It is cushy then. Yeah. Their first few weeks out there were cold in the high 30s to low 40s degree Fahrenheit with strong winds. And then by the end of their trip, the temperatures went up to 85, 90 degrees. They also had three sandstorms in two weeks. And the team got food poisoning in between sandstorms before they found many fossils. They think they found some of Stromer's original sites. They said, quote, We found what are very obviously excavation pits that had been filled in with sand blown in by the wind, in some cases burlap, end quote, which soaked in plaster was wrapped around fossils for protection during transport. And they even found in one case a, quote, little scrap of newsprint with German writing on it, end quote, which sounds promising. They said that in the desert with the wind, sometimes you can see a bone, but then you dig and then there's nothing else. On January 27th, they found more bones, including a humerus that was 67 inches, and it was part of a sauropod that they ended up naming Paralatitan. By the end, they had excavated a quarter of the skeleton. Matt Lamana also found 
half a mile from the sauropod site, non-dinosaur material including turtle shells, fish jaws, and other things that help show the environment. They named that area John's birthday site in honor of his brother John, who was born January 27th. After their expedition, Josh Smith and Matt Lamana went to Munich to look for more evidence to help with future excavations. Luckily for them, Stromer's son, Wolfgang, had donated Ernst Stromer's archives to the Paleontological State Collection of Munich in 1995. So Smith and Lamana were able to go through Stromer's diaries. They found more than 100 glass plate negatives of Stromer's specimens, and one showed a partial skeleton of Spinosaurus mounted in a glass case in the museum. Before that, people didn't even realize the Spinosaurus had been mounted before it was destroyed. They also found evidence that Stromer was not a Nazi sympathizer, and they found two photographs of the holotype. Based on a photograph of the lower jaw and a photo of the mounted specimen, Smith said that the 1915 drawings were a little inaccurate. Oliver Rahut in 2003 said that Stromer's holotype was a chimera with vertebrae and neural spines from a carcharodontosaurid similar to Acrocanthosaurus and a dentary from Baryonyx or Suchomimus, but not everyone agrees. Cosmo Studios and MPH Entertainment planned a sequel documentary before the first one aired. The Lost Dinosaurs of Egypt was the first one. And the team went for a second field season. The quarry known as John's Birthday Site had a lot of diversity in fossils. These fossils, though, were in hard sandstone, and that's hard to excavate. On one of their expeditions, Josh Smith and the team found one of Stromer's sites, which Markgraf had excavated. These were backfilled pits, maybe because whoever dug them ran out of time or money or both, and they wanted to preserve whatever was in there until they could return. It's possible this was Markgraf's last site. So now, fast forward to 2008. Nizar Ibrahim was on a fossil hunt expedition in Morocco. A man in a town near our food showed him bones in a cardboard box, and Ibrahim arranged for them to go to the University of Hassan II in Casablanca. In 2014, Ibrahim went to Italy on a small doctoral student budget after Cristiano del Sasso contacted him about fossils that the museum had gotten in 2006. So he saw these bones in Milan and recognized a distinctive pattern that he remembered seeing in Morocco. The bones in Milan had been found in 1975, and they were originally thought to be the lower jaw of a crocodile, but they were part of a Spinosaurus snout. The fossils were collected by amateur fossil hunters and then sold to collectors on the private market. Teeth, vertebrae, and a partial skull found in North Africa post-Stromer. At the Natural History Museum in Milan, Cristiano del Sasso had gotten a large collection of bones from an Italian fossil trader and told that they're from Morocco and they were likely spirited out illegally. They seemed to be from a single specimen. This included all the spines, the leg bones, foot bones, skull fragments, more fossils than Stromer's Spinosaurus. There were 60 bone fragments. Ibrahim moved the fossils to the University of Chicago, Paul Cyrano's lab, to be studied. It wasn't clear where exactly the bones were from or had originated from. So Ibrahim noticed that the spines had unusual lines, strange reddish lines, which was the first thing he noticed. But he also told us he noticed that the bones in Milan and the ones in Morocco were really similar in size, texture, color, and preservation. So the color, he said, was unusual. That has to do with the matrix at the site. He also said that he knew that associated dinosaur skeletons in the ChemChem are very rare. In the whole history of ChemChem scientific exploration, which started in the late 1940s, only three associated dinosaur skeletons were described, Rabacosaurus, Deltadromaeus, and his Spinosaurus. 
Because of all these factors and remembering he'd seen the similar pattern in Morocco in 2008, he wondered if he could track down the fossil hunter to compare and learn where these fossils came from. But all he remembered of the man was the man was tall, had a mustache, and wore a white tunic. It's not the most unique characteristic to describe somebody in Morocco. True. (laughs) (laughs) So Ibrahim flew back to Morocco and had some help, and he went village to village, shop to shop, chatting to locals for clues as to where this man might be. Morocco has vague export laws, and fossil diggers are allowed to trade and sell all common fossils, so dinosaur teeth, trilobites, but it's not legal to export rare fossils out of Morocco. These fossil diggers, they don't have special training, so sometimes the fossils will be damaged, and not everyone documents the rocks or where something comes from. It can also be a dangerous job. People have died breathing in too much dust, or sometimes structures will fall on them. However, they play a really important role. Paleontologists depend on these fossil diggers to find fossils, and then the fossil diggers depend on the income. On his second to last day of his trip, Ibrahim was at a cafe, sipping some tea, about to give up, and then a tall man in white walked past his table, and he happened to recognize the man's face, so he ran after him, and it was the man who had found those fossils, and he convinced him to show him where he'd found the bones. The man was worried about getting in trouble because the skeleton was illegally abroad, so he does remain unidentified. So they ended up driving an hour off-road, and then they trekked up a mountain for 30 minutes to a nondescript hole in the hillside, and this dig site had fragments of bones and teeth, most likely Spinosaurus. The man said that it took two people digging two months to get the skeleton out, and they sold it to the Italian fossil dealer for 14000 US dollars. This site gave a lot of information about the environment of Spinosaurus. Paul Serino, Del Sasso, and colleagues from the UK and Milan went to excavate and then to characterize the rock and landscape to see when and how Spinosaurus lived. And they found fossils with the same unusual patterns, so they confirmed it all came from the same specimen. They also found sea urchins and mollusks, marine animals, and shellfish. Not many herbivores were found in the area, but there were a lot of different carnivores and predators. So, back to Stromer's riddle. Sawfish, lungfish, and coelacanths are in the fossil record, and they could have fed Spinosaurus. The idea was that Spinosaurs were built to catch fish. And because they could eat fish, they wouldn't be competing with other predators in the area. And that's how the area could sustain the carnivores. So after the expedition, Ibrahim and the team CT scanned all the bones and they made a 3D model. And Tyler Keller assembled them into a virtual Spinosaurus. They added some missing parts based on Stromer's figures and drawings, as well as scans of Suchomimus for the skull, for the brain case, for example. So they started with Spinosaurus at 40% complete, then they went to 60% complete with scaling and other dinosaur parts and isolated bones. There's a lot of controversy on Ibrahim's 2014 paper on Spinosaurus. And then, of course, as we've talked about, Ibrahim also published about the tail in 2020. So diving into that. In 1934, Stromer described specimens, including long bones, vertebrae, some teeth, that he thought was a single taxon, and he called that Spinosaurus B., but he said parts of an ilium and leg bones were too small to be part of the same individual as the rest of the material. They found teeth, vertebrae, gastralia on one side, and the long hindlimb bones on the other side that belong together, but this has been questioned, and the material is lost from World War II. Stromer thought that this was a new species of Spinosaurus, so not Spinosaurus aegypticus, but he didn't like naming dinosaurs based on fragments. He wrote, quote, I refuse to participate in the abuse of coining new <laughs> genus and species name 
on the basis of such isolated and totally incomplete remains, which then, due to the, for paleontology, completely inadequate priority rules of nomenclature and their senseless pedantic application, will have to be used for further nomenclatorial acts, end quote. <laughs> I love that. He's spinning in his grave, though, based on <laughs> some of these recent dinosaurs that are named. Right. <laughs> But anyway, that's why he called this Spinosaurus B. <laughs> Stromer also described another specimen in 1934, but briefly. No illustrations or photographs have been found. That included three cervical vertebral centra, two half neural arches, a midsection of an elongate dorsal neural spine, two ribs, and possible distal fibula. And it was described as having similarities to Spinosaurus B and Spinosaurus aegypticus. But there's not enough information on this now to study. Because all those fossils were destroyed. Yeah, and there's no illustrations or photographs. The Kemkem region of southeastern Morocco has many predatory dinosaurs, including Spinosauridae. And Dale Russell, who named Spinosaurus moroccanus, also named Sigilmosaurus brevicolis in 1996, which has been interpreted as Carcharodontosaurus saharicus, then Spinosaurus moroccanus, then Spinosaurus aegypticus. Russell also later proposed that Spinosaurus B was Sigilmosaurus because he said they were nearly identical to bones from the early late Cretaceous sediments in Morocco. Russell then described Spinosaurus moroccanus in 1996 based on the length of the neck vertebrae and said that it was longer than the ones found with Spinosaurus aegypticus. Some scientists think that this is due to individual variation, but the holotype of Spinosaurus was destroyed, so they couldn't compare it directly with the new species. But some people think that Spinosaurus moroccanus is a nomum dubium or a junior synonym of Spinosaurus aegypticus. In 2014, Ibrahim and others designated the neotype of Spinosaurus aegypticus and said that Sigilmosaurus and Spinosaurus b were Spinosaurus aegypticus and that Spinosaurus moroccanus was a nomum dubium. In 2015, Evers and others said that Sigilmosaurus was a distinct genus, and that was supported in 2018 by Arden and others, and they said it was a close relative of Spinosaurus. And they said that there was more than one Spinosaurid taxon. They said that the proportions of the hind limbs were shorter than previous reconstructions. Based on Ibrahim's description, Spinosaurus had shorter hind limbs than previously thought, and they also found Sigilmosaurus had shorter neural spines than Spinosaurus. Since the Spinosaurus aegypticus neotype came from different museums and then parts were collected at different times, some scientists suggested that it wasn't made clear which fossils came from where or that there was evidence that the material all came from the same place and was from the same individual, so it was hard to make the neotype. So again, controversy. Lots of debate on all aspects of Spinosaurus. Then Ibrahim and others published their 2020 paper on Spinosaurus. Ibrahim returned between 2015 and 2019 to that site and found, quote, new fragments of the cranium and mandibles, several previously missing bones of the left and right pez, and an 80% complete tail by length, which all became part of the proposed neotype. They estimated that the Spinosaurus neotype was at least 15 years old based on 10 lags in the fibula, and then they estimated there were five more that were probably there before. The ribs had a similar number of lags. The spine, however, had fewer, so it's possible that the sail grew taller as it aged. Ibrahim has said that he's hoping this might help get a Moroccan National Museum of Natural History built. And museums are really great at getting local support for paleontology. 
As Garrett mentioned earlier in the show, if you can remember that far back, you can see Spinosaurus in Jurassic Park 3, where it has the more typical theropod skull, because that's before we found all this new material. Jack Horner said, quote, If we base the ferocious factor on the length of the animal, there was nothing that ever lived on this planet that could match this creature, Spinosaurus. Also, my hypothesis is that T-Rex was actually a scavenger rather than a killer. Spinosaurus was really the predatory animal, end quote. Much disputed and controversial. Yes. <laughs> We've spoken to him since that quote, and he no longer contends that T-Rex was a scavenger. Yes, yeah, he's since retracted it. But again, we're always finding new evidence, new fossils, and learning new things. You can also see Spinosaurus on postage stamps from Angola, the Gambia, and Tanzania. And our fun fact of the day fits in pretty nicely with that last detail about where the stamps <laughs> showing Spinosaurus are, because I looked into where Spinosaurid fossils have been found across the world, not just Spinosaurus, Spinosaurid, so the whole family, which includes Baryonyx and lots of others. As a quick summary, Spinosaurid fossils have been found on four continents, Africa, Europe, Asia, and South America. None have been found in North America, Australia, or Antarctica. According to the Paleobio database, the top three countries for fossils in the Spinosauridae family are Spain, Morocco, and Thailand. The usual Paleobio database caveats apply. It only counts published finds, and a single publication can include lots of individuals. But when a new fossil taxon is found in a country, it often gets published. So I generally see it as a pretty good way to see how widely spread something is in terms of countries. Not necessarily definitively which one has the most, though. So there's, for example, 29 published papers in Spain, only 24 in Morocco. I think you'd be crazy to say that there are more spinosaurid materials found in Spain than Morocco, though, because you can find teeth for sale all over the place that are from Moroccan <laughs> spinosaurids. Thailand, to me, was surprising, though, that that was in the top three. There is one report from North America, if you check on Paleobio database, like I did. At first, I said that it's been on five of the seven continents. But looking more closely, the North American quote-unquote Spinosaurid is actually a Torvosaurus that is occasionally put in Spinosauroidea, but family-wise is typically considered a Megalosaurid and almost certainly not a Spinosaurid. So that's kind of an erroneous point in the Paleobio database. It's a super useful database, but you got to be a little bit careful with it sometimes. Some of the other most popular countries to find Spinosaurid materials include Brazil, the UK, Niger, China, Egypt, Tunisia, Cameroon, Algeria, Japan, Libya, Tanzania, and then there's just one published paper from Argentina, France, Kenya, Laos, and Portugal. One published paper for each country? Yes. It'd be pretty weird if it was one paper about a find from Argentina, France, Kenya, Laos, and Portugal. Yes. That's why I asked. <laughs> but it's kind of funny because the postage stamps you mentioned, Angola, Gambia, and Tanzania, all have Spinosaurus on them. But Tanzania is the only country that actually has Spinosaurus remains found in them. Must be popular. It is, for sure. There are a lot of coins with Spinosaurus on it, too, because it's such a cool-looking dinosaur. Mm -hmm. And that wraps our 300th episode of I Know Dino. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to subscribe in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And check out our page at patreon.com slash inodino to join our community. You can check out our new Spinosaurus reward tier. Mm-hmm. 
Thanks again, and until next time. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.